Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Ivan Mendrin, who is a financial advisor, and we talked about um, the different nuances of debt snowballs, debt avalanches, how to look at debt, uh, how to sort of enter a practice and figure out what your gives and takes are, what the benefits and drawbacks are of each different type of of buying into a practice, planning to buy into a practice, selling a practice. It it was a lot of fun for me. I hope you enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. You know, I get questions all the time about how do we use 9.2 codes and 9.9 codes and which ICD codes go with different CPT codes and what can be billed together and what can't. And this confusion, this uncertainty really holds us back oftentimes to be able to do what we want to do, which is help our patients see clearly and provide their best opportunity for a lifelong vision. And so we built iCode Education for that specific purpose. Uh, We have lots of resources that are based in helping you understand disease states, helping you understand revenue cycles and billing and coding practices. So check out iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. And we have a specific uh, bundle there for you if you'd like to take advantage of it. It's the Premier Billing and Coding Bundle. We've got a 10% discount code just for listeners of this show. Uh, You can just enter the coupon code at check out you can enter in icode media 22 that's e-y-e-c-o-d-e m-e-d-i-a 22 at checkout we'd love to have you we'd love to work with you check out icodeeducation.com one of the challenging things with patients is when they invest in a really high quality pair of glasses and and customized lenses it can be challenging to keep those lenses clean, keep them scratch-free, smudge-free. And so we now have the ability with Crizal Sapphire HR lenses to offer our patients the best-in-class anti-reflective coating in a way that is really high resistance so that they're not uh, having to care for their lenses as much as when those lenses are caring for them. So remember that you can provide patients that best-in-quality, best-in-class transparency, clarity, durability, and UV protection in a single Crizal coating. If you want to learn more about Crizal Sapphire HR, contact your Essilor account executive or visit EssilorPro.com slash Crizal. Generally, I, I don't ever know where these conversations are going to go. I know that we kind of had a little bit of the last uh, episode that I did with Adam uh, yeah. was related to private equity. And private equity generally is kind of like a topic that keeps seeming to come up and people are, are yeah. quite interested in it. I you know, the, the comment that I made, um, I think the, the whole part about that discussion with Adam and I was that, um, you know, I think most ODs aren't aware of that. You know, you had a really astute comment today about um, about the fact that this is sort of how these firms work in general. Uh, but I don't think most people know that. What's your thought about that? So I, I after seeing your comment, I, I thought about it a little bit more and it's, it's different. It's a little bit weird when you are the investment, yes. right? Like yes. you, you are the funds investment and I, I can totally see how you don't really connect it to like your buyer is really this fund that's pulling in funds from other people and is managing those funds and you're just the investment. Like you are, you are that, uh, that target, so to speak. So I can totally see why people don't connect it that way because it's their their position is a lot different than if I were just to pull up some ABC mutual fund and invest in that mutual fund. Yeah, because because like for for me, if I were going to work with 
uh, with you um, or with a, another, another. So in general, if I'm, if I'm investing, it's common, right? That's why when, when, uh, when I made that comment of two and 20, this is just a common practice when you're talking about mutual funds or, or a firm that's managing a bunch of different investments for different people. Is that right? Well, with that specific fee structure, that's more for the hedge fund and apparently the private uh, private equity fund space. Yeah. If, if yeah, you so- pull up a if you pull up like a, a um, like a publicly traded mutual fund, there's an expense ratio, but it's really just that set expense ratio. There's no uh, there's no two percent plus an extra performance fee. It's right. just that's what it is. But with the private equity slash hedge fund world, it's it's they're adding on an additional layer of fees to go along with that. And that's why I think that's why it, it sort of when you kind of uncover that or when I when I started thinking about that and you said it so well, to me, it seems like they're just sucking wealth. And, and on, on the one hand, you know, as business owners, you know, you, you sort of I mean, you, you know, healthcare optometry is a challenging business because you are taking care of people. Uh, certainly we wouldn't do this if we didn't make money, right? If, if, I mean, maybe we may do it if, if we didn't need money, right? Like we might help people because we don't need money. But if, if, if it was a losing venture where you lose money, uh, in taking care of people, you wouldn't do it. So obviously it's a, it's a, you know, it's a profit, it's a profit center for a human being and a family on, on one side of it. But it's still when it, the, the thing that seems crazy about it is that, and yes, we pull wealth out of that business to support our, our families. But the thing that just, like you said, seems so different about it is that you, you become the investment. And then, yeah. uh, and I, I want to hear your advice to, to doctors, but then if somebody else sees that I'm an investment worthy of, of coming and dumping extra money into to try to get money out, wouldn't I think that I'm a very good investment as well? Like, what do you say to that to a doctor that's kind of chat, like trying to figure out what to do financially uh, with their practice? Yeah, in general, I mean, I mean, if I were in a, a a seller or if I were an advisor to a seller, I would be happy that there is another buyer at the table. I would be happy that there is an expanded market for my business, right? especially one that has a higher ability to pay. Um, even if you don't get a higher price, they have a higher higher ability to pay. So I would be I would be happy about that. And you have a lot of things to weigh if you are selling a business like that. Uh, you have first and foremost, like what is your responsibility to your family and your own financial independence? Like what what does that look like? Because you've built this tremendous asset and hopefully it should be it should be serving your ideal life and your your financial goals. Um, so that's one thing that basically I would say that's the first thing you need to think about. But you're also the steward of this business, and this business serves the team that's involved in the business. This uh, this business serves the patients, right? So you have these other parties involved, these other stakeholders um, that you also need to think about as the steward, and that's where it really gets to be a really a much more of a complicated decision than than just what is the highest price. Uh, where it, I think what's really important though is, as practice owners prepare for that is that you want to have options. 
when you get to that pos- that position and you're ready to exit your practice because everyone will exit their business, me, you, everybody, uh, you want to have optionality. You want to have the ability to say, I will sell to this buyer or to this buyer. And the way you do that is by creating good habits while you are in the practice, creating a good healthy business, reinvesting to the business when you need to, um, and then also reinvesting out of the business too. And as you do that, as you build wealth in and out of the business, you're able to give yourself optionality when it comes down to selling the practice because now you don't have to chase a certain dollar amount in order to make a retirement or next phase of your life financially feasible. Then you've got some options there. Uh, did that help? Was that yeah. what you're looking for? No, no. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think uh, Ivan, I think, you know, the, the, the challenging part for a lot of us is, uh, you know, immediately is just, if you're not inside doing that, I mean, there's a couple things. The first thing is that if you're not inside, like thinking about the sale in the long term of your practice, or even in the short term of your practice, it's hard to see what goes on specifically with that doctor. And I've said this a number of times, people are probably tired of hearing me say it, but you know, I can't bl- blame an individual doctor for selling to anybody, like selling to private equity, selling to, you know, I, I can see if you want to transition out of your practice, there's got to be a way to transition out of your practice. I had a uh, doctor email me yesterday. Um, I get a number of the emails like on a daily basis about, uh, about uh, doctors who are my age, maybe a little bit older. So early forties, maybe a little bit older, mid forties, late forties, maybe a little younger, mid thirties. They've been around in the profession long enough to, um, to build uh, a, a pretty significant practice that's generating significant wealth for their family over time. And they're, they really are having a hard time uh, finding new graduates and new doctors. And so what, what, one of the things he said, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point this out, I'm going to have him on the podcast, uh, hopefully, to, to discuss this. But, you know, um, the whole thing, and this is where I think your perspective comes in, um, a lot is, you know, he's talking about, look, I know a number of, of independent, um, they own their own businesses, optometrists that make 350, that's, this was his comment. They make 350,000 plus a year. And I, we cannot find people to come into our practices to, to grow them, to, to buy out because they are in smaller towns or et cetera, et cetera. And so I think a lot of times we, you know, as optometrists, we're humble. We don't come out and leave. So he wanted to go back and like talk to his school that he graduated from, talk to another school to try to encourage these students to come out and, and realize like this is a really a, a potentially quite lucrative profession. Uh, and you don't have to be commanded by somebody else. So uh, so in any case, like my thoughts on all of this, and one of the things I think that that's very helpful to have financial advisors like yourself on is, you know, when you do own your own practice um, there uh, or you're working toward that, there becomes these really significant um, plays that you can make from a tax standpoint, from an investment standpoint that um, that allow you like much greater flexibility than you can obtain with just like this straight uh, salary uh, W-2 employment that is really hard, I think, to wrap your mind around as a student. What's your advice to, to new graduates, young doctors coming out where they're wondering about how to navigate all of this? Yeah, how to, how to navigate those decisions around whether to or whether to not get into practice ownership? 
Yeah, I think I think you know you can. So if you're coming out of, I mean, the the hard part is 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 a lot of the I think the mismatches. The private practice doctor is trying to come to the table with some number that is less than maybe a corporation can offer this other person. And they're trying to bridge that gap. And I think on the one hand, we got to try to bring those private practice docs up to pay more. On the other hand, yeah. we got to have the, the, the new graduates and students understand that you can live in a smaller town, maybe an hour outside of the big place you want to live, two hours outside of it. Uh, maybe you're not going to make quite as much, but you don't need it. And then, but the fact is, is in five years or 10 years, the, the amount potential is so much greater. How do we, how do we build, how would you advise somebody on those decisions? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of different factors here. I mean, there's what does, what does that student or recent graduate want out of their career? Do they want to get into private practice? Do they not want to, um, where do they want to live? Uh, do they want to live in an urban setting? Do they want to live in a rural setting? Um, where do they see themselves eventually raising a family? Like there's, there's all these different factors at play here. Um, think about, I guess the first thing I would say is, is think about what is most important to you. Uh, is it practice ownership or is it not? Uh, because like you said, one of the, one of these great opportunities for practice ownership can come from these, these, these practices that may not be located in, uh, in a major city, uh, or, or in some place that's most desirable to live, but can still provide for a, a great fulfilling business opportunity, great fulfilling practice career, and, uh, and can be financially lucrative. And there's trade-offs to everything. You, know, you, you can't have everything you want. I mean, unfortunately, that's just, that's just a part of life. So you just got to think about what is most important to you in terms of your, your career goals, your financial goals, your family goals, and try to find the best compromise between all those different things. Unfortunately, um, I don't know that that's like the the tip you know that maybe you are looking for, but that's a tough decision because there's a lot of different factors. Money is a part of it, but money is not not the you know math of something isn't the only thing that's going to be coming into these decisions. A lot of it's going to be based around family and and personal values as well. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, the, the kind of underscoring theme, however, that I think the, the two things that I see when I talk to doctors, and I've talked to doctors that have been in what I would call big cities uh, on the West Coast, the East Coast, um, they're maybe just outside of the, like the LA, but they're still really big cities. And they're, and they're really big practices, and they can't find young doctors. So what I'm trying to figure out is like, how do we bridge that gap? And what are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about as practice owners uh, to kind of have those conversations? Um, and, and obviously that, that, that may not come directly from you, but from a financial advice standpoint, when, um, when you're counseling somebody about their practice or about their financial decisions, Kind of got what it. would that process look like when, uh, you know, a new graduate comes and says, look, I've got a quarter million dollars of debt. And Yvonne, I want to I work with you. I want to have a strategy where I, I get to be able to have some flexibility, uh, have, uh, have some say in the future. Maybe they don't know they want a private practice, they want corporate practice, but like what kinds of things do they need to be thinking about now? And what kinds of things do we need to be thinking about as practice owners to try to... Um, try to get them to that path where they can start seeing our practice as that, that future or vision for themselves. What are the financial Got aspects it. of that? 
Got it. Okay, so from a from a uh, a young optometrist perspective, thinking about maybe one day they'll they'll get into private practice, but they really just want to build some some uh, flexibility into the life. You know, student loans are are a huge part of that. I mean, it's it's the big thing that they're going to face when they as soon as they graduate. Um, it, it can bring down someone's risk tolerance because they see this huge debt that they're going to have to tackle right away. Think about your time horizon. So if you're if you are um, considering getting into, I mean, if you're pretty certain that you're going to want to at least explore getting into private practice ownership, there's a few ways for you to build some liquidity into your life or, or build some flexibility into your life. One of the ways is just tackling that debt head on, and, and you see this a lot. I mean, trying to tackle that debt as soon as possible, just get it off your balance sheet, and, and you can create a whole lot of financial flexibility. But that's a that's a tough road. I mean, you're you're talking about uh, living pretty frugally. You're talking about increasing your income whatever way you can, working extra days and other practices, whatever side hustles, whatever it is. Um, so that's a a very rigid. You need to be very intentional about that road, but it absolutely can be done. I mean, but it starts with with thinking about you know what are your priorities because you're you may have other priorities kicking in too. You you may already have a family that's going to demand a certain standard of living or certain things from you. Or maybe you're single and you have other less responsibilities outside of just tackling some of these initial things. So you think about what your priorities are and what are the other things demanding time and energy and, and money from you in your life. When you think about, Ivan, when you think about um, kind of those strategies right away. So I come to you, quarter million dollars in debt. I, I give you that same story. Um, and my priority is that I want to have private practice ownership in the future. Um what are the sort of things that you have me do? Like, tell me, how do we strategize on how to reduce that debt and tackle that debt and be more flexible? Uh, like, what, what, um, what can I do? Like, let's have this conversation. You know, what are the things you need to know from me? What are the things that I can do right now to be flexible in five years? Yeah, I mean, really, that comes down to immediate cash flow. Like, right? What is your income right now versus your expenses? How do we increase that gap so that we can throw as much money, if if this is the way you want to go, into tackling that debt quickly? How do we increase that gap between what you're spending and what you're earning? That's that's number one, and um, and I, again, that really comes down to okay, can we minimize expenses that are not valuable to you? Can we increase your income in any way possible? Uh, and, and can we shovel as much money as reasonably possible into that debt to to tackle it? And you can project this out. I mean, you can you can look at uh, different schedules in terms of how much you're paying into it and how quickly that debt will be paid off. So that really is number one is about cash flow. What are we earning? What are we spending money on? Um, are there things that are going to come up in the near future that we need to plan for as well? Uh, it's really just about really getting clear on cash flow and trying to be intentional about where your money is going as as much as possible. Now, there's another direction you can go d- depending on how much debt versus your income you're talking about. Uh, for example, income-driven repayment plans, if you're looking at the federal student loan system, income-driven repayment plans can be a viable stepping stone, even if it's not a permanent solution, but that can be a viable stepping stone to give you some cash flow flexibility. And especially if you are, uh, for example, to cold start a practice and your, your income is going to decline right in that year you're doing that, that can be a stepping stone to get you into practice ownership. And then as your um, cash flow increases, as the practice is getting more sustainable, 
then you can start to more aggressively tackle that debt. Yeah. So then, um, so in your mind, when you're tackling debt, so I, I, um, are you, are you lining things up in terms of like, what's your basic strategy? Are you saying what's the highest interest rates first? Uh, do you go with, uh, with the lowest, the lowest, um, total dollar amount first? How do you like to, to structure people tackling that debt? Yeah. So I guess there's two things to look at. If there's student loans, which there will be. So let's just say while there's student loans, I want to look at what is the best way to tackle those student loans. Is it going to be tackling it down as quickly as possible, uh, as quickly as reasonably possible with some balance there? Or is it going to be going for some sort of longer term forgiveness? Because there are debt levels where that are high enough versus your income where that will make sense. Uh, or are there are there other things coming up like again, like we're talking about practice ownership that you may want to just increase your flexibility. So the first thing is is to figure out, okay, what is the best approach for this student debt? If it's to tackle it as soon as possible, then it's just another debt on the balance sheet, right? So now we're talking about what is the best way to put, you know, which debt do you want to tackle first and then move on to the next and to the next? And that's where I'm looking at... Um, at the debt avalanche. So I'm looking at what is the highest interest rate debt first. Let's pay minimums on the others um, or restructure them, maybe refinance them to a longer length if we can, so that we can put as much as possible into that higher interest rate debt. And then we take that amount, put it into the next one, that amount, put it into the next one. I want to tackle the highest interest rate first. Yeah. You call that an avalanche, which is different than a snowball. Can you explain the differences between them? Yeah. So the, the other approach, uh, commonly called like the, the snowball method is that you're paying off the lowest balance first. And then once that lowest balance is paid off, then you want to tackle the next lowest balance and then the next one and then the next one. And throughout that whole process, you're taking all of those payments and adding it to the next one. And then all of those payments and adding it to the next one. The benefit there is really it's, it's psychological. Like you're, you're feeling the, uh, the progress sooner when you're tackling the lowest balance first, you're seeing that progress sooner. Um, from the pure math perspective, you want to tackle that highest interest rate first. Yeah. And, and so the, the Dave Ramsey's of the world would say, but, but Yvonne, you don't understand psychology, the psycho- psychological aspects of humans. And so you got to do the debt snow- snowball. And you're saying, no, but the math makes more sense to do the, to do the avalanche. So how do you um, compel, what are the reward systems that people get to put in place so that the avalanche triggers that same reward or a similar reward or at least some reward so that they are compelled to continue to do it with, with debt that may be larger in total, but, but mathematically it's still better. How do, you, how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, and that's different for everyone. So that's a, that's a great point. I mean, psychology, emotion, values, all of this other intangible stuff plays into, absolutely plays into financial decisions, especially around debt. But I want to start with what does the math say? And then how do we find the best compromise between those two? So uh, I think what's what's important here is building in benchmarks, right? So uh, building in, okay, we're going to pay off $10,000 of debt, and then we're going to celebrate in this way. And I've yeah. seen a lot of examples about this. I mean, there are there are so many. It really is personal to like, what do you need 
in order to motivate you to get to that next step. Uh, I, I love just building in benchmarks though. I mean, you can make it at whatever way you want. I like debt balances. You can start with, okay, we're going to pay off the first 10,000 or something like that. And then we're going to celebrate in this way, in whatever way is important to you, go out to dinner with your wife, you know, whatever that is, uh, yeah. figure out what that thing is that's going to motivate you have a vision board, you know, make it tangible if you need, like there, there's a lot of ways to make it really personal. That's where the fun comes in. Cause you can, you can figure out what motivates you, but just start to make those benchmarks. Look at, look at the, uh, the road ahead, figure out what debts you need to pay off and in what order, and then put some benchmarks in there. And this is your celebration benchmark. This is what you're going to do. So to me, you know, when, so I'll, I'll disclose this. You may know this already from, from, uh, from my podcast, if, if you have ever listened to it, but the, um, the, you know, we, when I got out of school in 2008, um, I had about $110,000 of student loans. Uh, 10 of that was from my wife's undergrad. The rest of it was from optometry school. And, uh, and I don't know when this happened. It must've been. So when the comment I made, I remember my practice management course telling one of my buddies, so our, our practice management professor, he was talking about investment strategies and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, I don't have any idea on investment strategies. I just want to pay somebody to tell me what to do, you know? And so I, I got that with school and, and they said, yeah, I, that, I'm the kind of same way. It doesn't mean I don't want to understand it. It just means that, that like, I'm not an expert, you know, just like patients aren't going to come to, to me and, and I'm going to just equivocally tell them all their different options. I might tell them all their options, but I'm going to say, based on your case and, and my understanding of what your problems are, we're going to, uh, this is my primary recommendation. This is what we're going to do right now. This is what we must do. This is what we should do. Uh, those sorts of things. And so that was my point. And, um, and so what spoke to me was I didn't have like a, a financial um, advisor right away. Actually, I got, I got uh, connected with a guy that um, sold me a bunch of whole life insurance. And um, well, I think there's probably a mechanism for that. At that time in my life, it, there wasn't a need for it. I mean, my, my perspective was I was overpaying for, for what I needed yeah. at that time. And so it really yeah. turned me off to, you know, I, it turned me off to that process. And so I didn't have anybody guiding me through it. And so about a half year into my practice uh, or into out of being out of school, um, I must have encountered Dave Ramsey. And I was like, look, we're, we're going to Dave Ramsey this sucker. And so what was easy for me is I didn't have somebody like Yvonne to tell me, hey, Chris, let's do this. Let's build in some wins. I just I, I had a, a quote unquote financial advisor who had just sold me whole life insurance. Yeah. And then yeah. I find this other guy online and I, I kind of whittle down all this other stuff and figure it out on my own. And then realize, Hey, I don't want whole life insurance. Hey buddy, get me out of whole life insurance. I want to make it term life and, and do all those sorts of things. And now I have a financial advisor that I, that I do trust. Um, and so, but, but the, it was the psychological aspect of the debt snowball that was so helpful but what you're saying is if I have an Yvonne right out of school, um, first of all, uh, then I can, I can have somebody do the math for me. That's probably, it's probably smarter to, to look at the numbers. Well, it's definitely smarter to look at the numbers, but then also help me figure out what that process is going to look like and when those rewards are going to be built in. So I can avalanche it as opposed to snowball it. That's what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's yeah. exactly what I'm saying. Start start with the math. And look, I'm a fan of of systems that will help you do stuff that will help you get to to the next level. If it's the snowball method that gets you there, 
great. Like I, I, I'm not going to fight against that. From my perspective, I want though to start with the math and say, okay, based on this, what is the best decision for you? And you can absolutely do that with the with the avalanche method, paying off even if it's the highest balance first. But you have to build in those reward systems. You have to build in those checkpoints that tell you, okay, I've made progress, and this is what I'm going to do to celebrate that progress. Today, I want to talk about the Mind Aid Multifocal for just a second. It has been a really great thing in our practice for our patients who are presbyopes of all areas. But, you know, those tricky presbyopes are always the ones that are kind of emerging where they don't want to give up any of their faraway vision, but they're having some struggles up close. And so what uh, the Mind Aid Multifocal has been able to do for us is to allow those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily. And then as we have those patients progress into other levels where they need more ad powers, it's been a nice, smooth transition. So the ultimate hurdle that we've seen in our practice before the My Day Multifocal was that we'd have patients who would resist any transition to a multifocal lens because of that distance blur. We just haven't seen that. So if you haven't started using My Day Multifocal in your practice, I would encourage you to start, check it out, uh, contact, reach out to your Cooper reps for those trial lenses uh, and commit to My Day Multifocal for your patients. I think they're going to like it. If you haven't checked out MacuHealth yet for your patients in Category 1 through Category 4, I think there's a lot of evidence that you should be considering. The first is if we just look at AREDS 2 and what they, they talk about, MacuHealth is a, so for patients in Category 3 and Category 4 um, AMD, MacuHealth is a great option for them that follows that entire, um, that entire protocol, and it also adds mesozeaxanthine to the mix, which if you look at some of the evidence, I believe shows me that it's going to thicken the macular pigment better than without mesozeaxanthine. It also uses the a correct AREDS2 dose of zinc uh, at 25 milligrams, and so you don't have to worry so much about the potential side effects of zinc. The other thing to, to think about, and it's beyond the scope of this, although you've probably heard me talk on other podcasts, is that in patients in Category 1 and 2, there may be some additional benefit uh, to supplementing them with something that may be a little bit less than the AREDS 2, so you don't have to add as much to it. And that's where I use the MacuHealth LMZ3. And so I think if you haven't done this yet, I'd consider MacuHealth in your practice and for your patients. And it's been great for my patients, and, um, and we really feel like we have the ability to uh, help those patients in all categories of macular degeneration. I mean, that's an unfortunate reality of what financial services has been for forever. You know, uh, I've my earliest years in, in this profession were in the product sales world. So I'm very familiar with that. And um, it, it's difficult for the consumers in general, especially optometrists, to, to figure out who's trustworthy, who to, who to best work there, who to best work with. That's just a, an unfortunate reality there. Well, Ivan, certainly there's, so I, I'm not totally throwing, I'm not, I, I probably did too, too much. I, I'm not intentionally throwing that, that guy under the bus. I'm just saying that like, you know, I didn't know much, you know, at that time. Yeah. And so, um, but there, but my sense is there's probably some reason to have at some point, there's probably some reason that whole life does make more sense for different tax purposes, et cetera. Um, maybe, maybe not, I don't know, but, but, um, but there's probably a mechanism for some of those, uh, those products that work for some people. Is that correct? There is a certain list of situations where something like that makes sense. 
It's just a product and every product has a fit. For the vast majority of cases where I see it sold, not really. You know, I, I don't know. That's, it's, it's always in the best, in the best interest of that person buying it, but there are definitely every, every tool has a fit. Uh, there are, there are some limited situations where that makes sense. Well, one example might be is if you were like, let me, let me bounce this off of you. So let's say that, um, that, so as I've thought about this, I'm wondering like these examples where that might be the case where like a whole, some sort of whole life policy, some sort of life insurance policy might be a mechanism where that could help you over time would be if you've already maxed out like all of your solo 401ks, you've maxed out every single, um, benefit to delay the taxes on that on that money over time right so to defer the taxes over time and and then you could have the ability to somehow purchase that whole life at a lower tax rate than you otherwise would be now so you can pay taxes on it now at some lower rate than what you're what you are otherwise at so is that is that kind of a model might, that might make sense within whole life? If I'm not trying to throw somebody under the bus always for whole life, that might be a model that would work. <laughs> um, maybe. <laughs> so uh, I guess what I'll say in general is that the first thing you need to figure out with all these decisions is I, I see these things separately. I see on the one hand, you need to manage risks. And on the other hand, you want to invest. So on the one hand, you want to manage these these financial risks in your life as best as you can, as efficiently as you can. Whole life's usually not going to do that for you, for the most part. Uh, for example, term life insurance is a fantastic tool to do that, to just manage that risk in your life. On the other hand, investing, you want to invest as prudently and as efficiently as you can, right? So these are two separate things. Once you're going to combine them, there needs to be a very specific reason to do that. Um, one, one reason that a policy like whole life insurance or universal life insurance, any permanent life insurance makes sense is if there is a permanent insurance need. Um, you can argue there's never a permanent insurance, true permanent insurance need. But, uh, for example, if there are a, a, an extremely wealthy family facing estate planning or estate tax issues, um, or if you have a special needs child and you know that you want to fund a certain certain amount for them in a, a special needs trust or something like that at the end of your life. So there are certain cases where you have a you may have a permanent risk, a permanent insurance need. Okay, if you want to combine it and now look at it as a sort of savings vehicle or investment vehicle, you got to be really intentional about where that fits in with all of your other investments because right. y- yes, that cash value is not um, going to be taxed along the way, technically. Um, yes, you can take loans from it, uh, and, and that loan value is not going to be taxed against you, but that's also the case with any debt you take from any, uh, against any asset. That's, there's no magic there. And, um, and really the, the, when you look at a whole life policy, like the growth there is, is going to be similar to like bonds over the long term. Like it, it's not a comparison for something like more aggressive investments, like, um, like the stock portion of a portfolio or like your practice or real estate even. It's more of a a comparison to something more conservative like the bond chunk of your portfolio, the more stable stuff. So that's really what you need to compare it to. Uh, there are There are like academic research papers that will show you that 
something like a life insurance policy can fit in with a retirement plan because you can pull from a life insurance policy when markets decline and different things like that. It's it's really academic and I'm not sure how effective that is in practice. I've not seen it done well in practice. I'm sure it's out there. I'm sure someone listening to this is going to say, hey, I have it and I'm doing it. Great. But I, it's just a lot of it's more academic than than in reality. Um, I don't so know I think that that's a great conversation. No, no. I think it's a great conversation about what I, what I was trying to do is just not throw, you know, obviously I had a bad experience with it. I'm trying to kind of find other avenues where it, yeah. it could uh, it could make sense. Yeah. I think the um, the other the other side of that is that you know it kind of brought up you transitioning where these things kind of work for you, and so you know we, we talked about you know you come out of school and I don't know maybe this is, maybe I'm different but what we've talked about so far is like getting out of debt right getting getting out of that debt getting everything gone, and then does that ever change where as you become a, a practice owner from your philosophy where you know okay well I can I, I might want to buy a house. Uh, I might, I might need to buy out the partner, the, the existing partner, uh, of the practice, uh, and, and then you, you take on debt. And so I'll tell you, you know, I'll, I'll bring my story into it. So, you know, the only, the only debt I have right now is my home loan, uh, which is paid off in two years to three years. And, um, and then, uh, I had to buy my dad out at the end of the last year. So, uh, we were 50-50 owners. I, I was able to buy in um, in small chunks over the last 10 years. I've been out of school for 14 years. And since two, well, I'm a little bit longer than that. So from 2010 to about 2020, uh, I was buying into that 50%. So I was, I was paying them over time. Well, then, you know, at the end of last year, my dad decided he wanted to, to be done and retire by uh, July of this year. So um, so I bought I bought him out. And... Um, and so then, then there's this this piece of you where you're kind of like, well, I could take all this money that I've I've saved and invested, and then shift it over and and pay them, and then and it's gone. I didn't do that. I I, I uh, basically took out a loan, seventy uh, thirty loan. So I got financing for seventy percent. I paid him thirty percent of the of the remaining fifty percent, and now I have this debt uh, on the business essentially. I mean, it's on me, but it, but it's on the business. And so, um, so how do you look at that kind of debt? Like, so we've got to, is that bad debt? I mean, obviously bad is not the right term, but you know, we've, we've worked so hard to get out of debt and then we've kind of gotten back in there at some point, does this avalanche or snowball always work for everybody? How do, how do you view that? No. So I, debt is not inherently good or bad is my take. Debt is just a source of money, it's just a source of capital. And it can be imprudently used or it can be prudently used. It can be productive debt, meaning you're investing in an asset. I would argue your education is an asset or it can be uh, unproductive, credit card debt, buying stuff, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I wouldn't look at your life goal to be debt-free forever at any cost. I think it's prudent to try to pay down debt as reasonably quickly as you can, but it's also useful and it's okay to take on debt for opportunities like buying into a practice. If you are taking on debt that's at a reasonable cost, meaning the interest rate is not extreme, it fits within your cash flow. So it's not going to cause too much stress in your life in terms of your cash flow goes. You're not stretching yourself too thin. And it's 
potentially tax deductible. If it's in the practice, maybe that interest is tax deductible and it's going towards something that product, that productive. I don't see that as a negative. I mean, debt is going to ebb and flow throughout your life. You're going to, you're going to buy a house. You're going to pay that down over time. You may pull out money to refinance for, for something. Maybe you take a home equity line of credit for an upgrade on the house. Maybe you take out practice debt. Like debt will ebb and flow over time. You do want to manage that as best as you can. You do want to keep a careful eye on how much of your cash flow is going to debt payments. But it's not a bad thing where you need to be constantly denying debt at every stage in your life. What kind of things do, do would you – so again, I feel like – I mean I've got – financial advisors and I've got attorneys and, and uh, tax guys that I, that I talk to about this all the time. Sometimes, you know, you know, Ivana, it, it kind of comes down to like, you just sort of have to pick one, right? Like you just sort of yes. have to say, trade-offs. I understand, trade-offs, yeah. I understand all of this. Yeah. I understand the trade-offs, the benefits and drawbacks. I'm not going to go back and forth and kind of, you know, wring my hands over this. It's like, look, you know, I've got, so yeah, on the practice, I've got four and a half years left at 5.5% interest. Part of me, you know, the Dave Ramsey that, that laid eggs in my brain 12 years ago, uh, <laughs> makes me look at that and like, I got to get rid of it. You know, I got to get rid of it. But, but at the same time, like, I'm not going to be able to find cheaper money right now than five and a half percent if I were going to. And, and so anyway, so tell me about that. How, how do we, how do you get to that point of, of helping somebody say, look, this is just, this is what we're going to do. We're going to stick to it. We can rethink it at some strategic points, but like it's, yeah. you guys stick to it. How do you do that? Everything's about trade-offs. Every cash flow decision is about trade-offs. Um, you have to think about, okay, if you're going to pay extra into something, what, are, what opportunities are you missing out on? There's an opportunity cost. I like to look at cash flow as, as what percentage of your cash flow is going to certain buckets. So I want to look at how much of it's going to spending, how much of it's going to debt, debt to income ratio, your debt rate, how much of it is going to saving and investing, how much of it is going to taxes. And as long as I feel like those, those ranges, I look at it in terms of percentages, like what percentage of your, your cash flow. So as long as those ranges are relatively reasonable, healthy, like I, I'm okay with a, a debt payment staying on, on the cash flow or your, your debt staying on the balance sheet. So that's the first thing I want to look at is, okay, what are those scores? Like, what are those percentages? And do I feel like, do I feel like they're within healthy ranges? Another thing is just what are, uh, going back to like, what are your priorities? Like, is it a priority for you to, um, to purchase into a practice or is it a priority to purchase a home? Because if you purchase into the practice, you may need to wait on, on the house. And if that's fine with you, if that's fine with your family, if that's something you're comfortable with, then that's a trade-off you make. Um, so it's a, a lot of it really, again, going back to, and this is not like a a specific answer because people are just different. They have oh, different yeah, priorities. Different. Totally. People feel different about debt. I mean, family history, values come into debt, debt decisions, risk tolerance. Like there's, there's so much involved in this that uh, I want to look at those scores. I want to look at it in terms of percentages. But I also want to keep in mind, like, what are your priorities? What are what are our, our next things we're planning for? And, and put your money there first. Yeah, so I think um, the 
I think all those things are what, what's compelling to me about, about this conversation just in general, Yvonne, is that I, uh, I think, you know, my take home is first of all, don't make some of the mistakes I made. I think you've got to probably interview a, a couple different people. I would, you know, I'm not a, an advisor related to this, but what I've found very helpful is to have people who have a fiduciary responsibility to me um, and, and to our, to our investment goals and not necessarily to some product. Um, and so what kinds of questions, so I'll kind of give you the last word here. First of all, what kind of questions do you think are questions that new graduates or doctors looking to make the change uh, in terms of advisors that we should be asking an advisor about to kind of get to, to, to the heart of how they operate? Yeah. So I, I will agree with you there. I think if you're going to look for an advisor, you should find someone that is that has a fiduciary responsibility to you and that is not connected to a product sales company or, or product sales at all. So the the industry term is like fee only. If you if you see someone that's fee only, that's kind of the the uh, jargon that we'll use. So some questions to ask. Number one is who who do you work with? Number two, what do you do for them? What are your actual services? What does that look like? Is there a service calendar? What does that experience look like? Number three, how are you paid? How do you earn money? You just want to have a good understanding of that. That will tell you if they are fee only. Where and that's you're and a fee only is, for their services is like a fee, like a fee base. Like I pay you, you give me advice, and I take your advice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're you're paying them in some way. The, the payment is coming from you, the client, to the advisor in some way. There's no third party involved. There's no product sale commissions, anything like that, right? So how are you paid? How do you receive payment? Uh, and there's a few different ways that looks. It could be from assets. It could be from a flat monthly fee. It could be from an hourly, w- whatever way that you're, you're comfortable paying. So how do you get paid? Uh, do you have a fiduciary responsibility to me? Those are the the big questions I would ask. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I think, again, you know, you and I are a little bit biased on this. And, and I think uh, that's okay. Biased, I mean, I, yes. we, all, we all, yes. yeah, that's okay. Tell everybody where they can find you and um, and uh, and what other, what your podcast is called, where they can find your podcast, get to know you a little bit better. And uh, go ahead. Yeah, um, you can always find me on my website, optometrywealth.com. Um, you can learn more about me and my background and, and my firm and, and some of the things we do for optometrists nationwide. Uh, you can always email me. Feel free to reach out to me by email, Yvonne, E-V-O-N, at optometrywealth.com. My podcast is the Optometry Money Podcast. Pretty straightforward to the point. You can find that anywhere you, you find your podcasts. And um, yeah, feel free to reach out to me. I've, like you said, yes, I, I clearly have a bias because I run my own business in a fee-only fiduciary manner, but I've worked through all these different business models. I've, I've seen it all. If you have questions about how financial services works in general, just just reach out to me. Happy to happy to explain that. Awesome. Ivan Mendrin, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me. Take care.